you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate and to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thank you, KJ. And Derek DeGaldio's In and of Itself film, Derek opens up an incredible story to his magic act that he heard from a stranger at a bar in Spain. The story is of a sailor who returned home from war. He learned the only thing more difficult than war was surviving a war. He had no family, no wife, and no prospects. He felt his life was over. He heard about these bets being made that was an illegal, on an illegal game, Russian roulette. He attended and played the game. He wrote his name down and walked into a dark room where a group of strangers placed bets on whether or not he would survive the game. They handed him a revolver with one bullet in the chamber. Now if he lives, he gains a large fortune from the bets. If he dies, then he sees his problems coming to an end, is what he feels. <clears throat> when he got to the stage and the trigger eventually was pulled, there was a click. He survived. He collected the money from the bets and unexpectedly returned for a second night. No one returned for a second night. He played again, and again he survived. He returns a third night, and people start showing up to see this man who has now been given a name, the Rulatista. By the time he returns for the fourth night, people start speculating that it's a sham, that the bets are rigged, and somehow he is cheating his way into winning. So when the Rulatista hears this, he says, let me add a second bullet. And again, he lives. The next night, he adds a third bullet. Again, he, he survives, and the crowds are getting larger at this illegal game. The next night, he adds the fourth and the fifth bullet. He survives. The next night, he returns and tells people he will have all six bullets in the chamber. This time, no one places any bets. They just want to watch the Rulatista finish the game. When he raises the gun, for the first time in 100 years, an earthquake strikes the city. And he, as he pulls the trigger, a beam from the roof has fallen in between his hand and his head. He takes this as a sign to retire from the illegal game. He is now rich, and he finds a wife. 
Eventually, he grows old and has grandchildren. His story was well known. One night in his beautiful mansion, he is awakened in his sleep, only to find a burglar breaking into his safe to find his money. He approaches the burglar, shocked, and the burglar pulls a gun on him. The ruletista says, don't you know who I am? The burglar responds, no, and shoots him dead. He was a man with no hope who rose to fame from mere chance, then felt invincible and realized with his last breath he indeed was not. As we've been going through the story of Esther, we have seen her become strong. It is sometimes the areas of our greatest strengths that in the end become our greatest area of weakness. Esther, we see, becomes the Rulatista. We see it as her strong leadership and boldness that become her greatest success, but it will soon become her failure. We have seen Esther grow confident and sure of what she is doing, planning out every word carefully. She sees her requests met, and maybe she felt it was even easy to convince this foolish king of the requests. How much more can she ask for? In the final acts of Esther, we see her fall, we see her fall of character, and the author invites us to ask the question, where is God? So last week, uh, Andrew went over the demise of Haman, uh, how Esther became the woman she was meant to be and stood up for her people and her heritage to King Xerxes uh, through a banquet and through planned wisdom. Um, but just because Haman is dead and out of the story, the evil that Mordecai was mourning over is still at large because the enemy is not flesh and blood but ideologies, principalities, and powers in high places. Uh, the biblical authors invite us to see that although throughout history there are individuals who are animated by evil, evil persists through the spread of ideologies and worldviews. So though Haman is gone, the work and ideologies he represented remain. Uh, remember, when we, get, when we get there in the story, we'll show up People will show up to kill the Jews on the 13th day of Adar, hence why the Jews had to fight. Similarly, Haman may be dead, but the plan to kill the Jews still remains. So we pick up with the story there. Uh, Esther chapter 8, we're going to go through, uh, through the last three chapters, so bear with me. Esther 8, 1 through 8. <clears throat> that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's state. Esther again pleaded with the king. Falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards with me any favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman son of Hamaditha, the Agite, devised <clears throat> and wrote to destroy the kings in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. 
Now write another decree in the king's name and in behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring will be revoked. So Esther and Mordecai are given a great authority and now receive the recognition that we were expecting for them to receive long ago. Now catch the divine reversal that we've mentioned in previous weeks. Do you see it here? Uh, we see Haman once wore the king's ring. Now Mordecai does. Giving Mordecai all the authority that Haman had. Next, Esther, uh, Esther goes before the king and she flatters him, asking that the edict Haman devised against the Jews be reversed. We, we see that it cannot be reversed. Once Persian law is written, it won't be reversed, right? But the king is clearly flattered because we see him view himself as the Jews' savior by saying, well, because Haman was trying to kill the Jews, that's why, the reason why I had him killed for you guys, right? That's not true. The king killed Haman because he was drunk in rage and thought Haman was trying to sleep with his wife and because he saw signs of Haman wanted to take his throne. But flattery works, and he gives them permission to write a new edict in his name, meaning the new law cannot be revoked either. So on the same day that Haman's law gave permission for people to go and kill the Jews, this new edict is written by Mordecai, gives permission for the Jews to defend themselves against anyone who attacks them. Uh, we jump down to verse 15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine lin linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because of fear of the Jews had seized upon them. Now we see Mordecai, instead of mourning with sackcloth like he was in, in uh, chapter 4, wearing the finest robes. And instead of the Jews mourning and fasting, they are feasting and celebrating, which might seem a little too soon. They still have to fight, right? Uh, but they see that there is hope. They are filled with hope. The Jews celebrate seeing that Mordecai has risen in success, that it shows signs that their race is not doomed. Even though they have a battle coming up, they see divine salvation through Mordecai's promotion and edict. And Mordecai the Jew has delivered this new edict with Haman's once title. And Haman's body is rotting in public, right? So they have a lot of good signs that the king is even on their side, which would explain why others are afraid of the Jews. Think about it. The guy in second command who wrote this law against the Jews is now dead in public from the king, and now the Jews have the right to defend themselves, and a Jew takes the place of the man who wrote that edict, writing a new edict. So, of course, the Jews are celebrating, even though the battle has not yet happened. They are starting, uh, people even start joining Jewish, the Jews as allies, because why would they want to oppose the king? Why would they want to oppose this second-in-command leader, right? It's possible at this time, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that Esther's heritage had become known to the public now, that she had revealed the queen was also Jewish. Either way, people are siding with the Jews. They are becoming one in the battlefield for the Jews, not becoming religiously Jewish, uh, but just joining with them, taking a side. Uh, and so then we pick up in 9, 1 through 10, right? 
On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them, because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the princes, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshanatha, Dolphin, Aspatha, Paratha, Adelia, Aridatha, Parmashatha, Arise, Aride, and Vezatha, those names, Jeez Lois. The ten sons of Haman is who they are, <coughs> of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So the day has come, it's the great battle where the Jews are ready to defend themselves against their enemies. The enemies were hoping to over- overpower them, but the tables were turned. The Jews won against the people who hated them. Remember, they are fighting, they're not fighting everyone in Persia, but only those who attack them in self-defense. And in self-defense, they win. They are not taken over. Their enemies were terrified, and rightfully so. Even the nobles, officials, and governors sided with the Jews. How they helped, uh, possibly through providing weapons or strategies or information. I mean, their boss is Mordecai now, right? So there's this fear on them Our boss is Mordecai. We might as well help the Jews. Mordecai did become known for his reputation and his power quickly, um, and he only became more and more powerful. They killed 500 men within the king's court alone. They, They also killed Haman's 10 sons, but they don't touch their plunder or their goods or their belongings. Uh, We'll talk about why in a minute, but justice has been served. They won. It's over. And the fact that they won so easily with help and Mordecai, second in command, leading the Jews to deliverance, is the ending the Jews were hoping for. So it's incredible. But the story doesn't end here. In verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, the number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was within the king's courts, was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's sons, 10 sons, be impaled on poles. So the king hears about how many people were killed within his gates, and he's surprised and impressed. It shows he isn't concerned with the blood on his streets due to him signing a law out of ignorance, but it, or even arrogance, but admires the overpowering. This is where things get a little dark. Esther asks the king to grant another day for the Jews to now hunt down their enemies. 
The threat is over. The day where the enemies come to attack the Jews has passed. They're not allowed to attack the Jews any longer. She is taking revenge into her own hands and says, I want more people dead. Is it still in self-defense? We're not so sure. Esther is bloodthirsty and demands respect from everyone who hates the Jews. She was humble in her beginnings with faults and then rose to be the confident queen to now just asking for more respect, more death, and she doesn't even beg. We notice her attitude towards the king has changed. Michael Fox said this, the personality of Esther changes in Act 10, as does the whole tenor of the tale. Esther seems harder, blunter, even crueler. She no longer shows uncertainty. She does not even bother to avail herself of entreaty and manipulation to get her way. She simply asserts her will and uses her power. We can see the Haman, the wrathful one, rising within her. The sons of Haman were already dead, but she wants them publicly shown to be impaled, to show her power. The king already impaled Haman for her, but it seems she wasn't satisfied with the one. Uh, verses 14 through 15. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. So the king caught up with the momentum, and he grants a request and puts it into law. Now, we don't see Mordecai involved with this, but he isn't as innocent either. Uh, remember the last chapter, in chapter 8, he wrote in that the Jews could defend themselves against children and murder them. Now, this is the most controversial chapter in the book of Esther, and people have been talking about it for centuries. Um, but it is common in those days that if you were going to kill your enemy, you would kill their children as well, their wives, and sometimes destroy everything they had. Or you would take their enemy's belongings as your own. Um, women and children were viewed as property, so sometimes you would spare them as your property now, and they would become your slaves, or etc. But Mordecai writes that the Jews have the right to kill children in self-defense and taking anything they want. But what child is attacking grown men during a battle? This is the most controversial thing about the book of Esther again. Uh, we don't have the time to get into all of it, but what I will say is this. God promised deliverance to the people of Israel, and how that came about was up to Mordecai and Esther. Just because something is described, this is important, just because something is described in the scriptures does not mean that God endorses it or approves of it. Many have said for Mordecai's sake that he had to write exactly what Haman wrote for, an encounter, for a counteract. Uh, some say, although Mordecai wrote it, the Jewish people didn't partake in it because there is no mention of women and children deaths. It only has the men deaths. Uh, only men in these patches, passages are mentioned, but Mordecai still wrote it in as an act of revenge, as an act of a counteract, and that's not good. Uh, now this can open a whole can of worms, but some say God is okay with it because of the safety of the Jews. But they were safe. It's after the day of battle. There is no more harm, especially from children. The truth is not only in the, um, the truth is not only in the book of Esther, but God's people take part in very evil things. God doesn't always say that it's wrong in the pages that we read. The scripture authors, most of the time, don't give us new commandments of every book, but rather invite us into the scriptures to ask the question, was God okay with that? Did God say that was a good thing to do? Did God command that? Here we see this act that they partook in, if they partook in it, as a great evil. There's a difference between justice and retribution. Esther takes retribution. The characters in Esther and Mordecai are completely unaware of how deeply they have been formed by the Persian culture. It goes to show 
that a pattern of compromise ultimately leads to a life of compromise. Just like the Rulatista, Esther feels invincible, swallowed up within her power. Andrew has mentioned this uh, in previous weeks, but the book of Daniel would be the counterpart, right? The Jew in Diaspora who doesn't compromise, who isn't shaped by Babylonian ideology, but stands close to God. We can thank God that he can still work through us in spite of our failures, but our model of being God-honoring exiles is not in Esther and Mordecai, but rather in Daniel. Now, it's entirely possible that the Jews did not partake in the children and the killing of children and women since there is no mention of it, but we don't know for sure. Uh, And remember, they don't take any plunder. Why don't they take any plunder? So in 1 Samuel 15, you can study it in detail for yourself, but uh, King Saul takes plunder and goods after a battle when God said not to, specifically with the Amalekites, and Haman is from that descent. Uh, So we see that the Jewish people are not wanting to make the same mistake as King Saul with a descendant from an Amalekite while their race is in jeopardy, right? So then we'll go to Esther 9.20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. As the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire. Jump down to uh, chapter 10, verse 1. To its distant shores and all his acts of power and might, together with the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Excuse me. So, Mordecai sets this this holiday in, and it is called Purim, which is named after the dice of the lot of Haman. Remember, we talked about that in week three. Mordecai is now honored to a place of great wealth, and power. The Jews celebrate every year two days around the time of March. Uh, They celebrate not only that they won the battle, but that they can rest, not that they won the battle, but that they can rest in deliverance that they received from the enemy. Uh, The author writes the story of Esther to show craftiness of Esther and character in Mordecai, to make a strong point on why the Jews should celebrate this holiday of Purim. Notice Mordecai doesn't command people to celebrate, but he convinces them. The author of this book uses a story to convince the Jews as well. Uh, Why did they name the holiday after Haman's lot? A few reasons of what could be. It could be a play on of words of Purim, meaning lots, uh, with the ancient Babylonian word uh, Peru, meaning fate. Uh, But Peru would be a single uh, word, and Purim is a plural. So a lot of people don't think that this is the definition of why they named the holiday after that. I think that makes a lot of sense, uh, personally. Some believe that there are, there was two lots casted in the story of Esther, and one just wasn't mentioned, but since one wasn't mentioned, it wouldn't 
quite make sense. Most likely, uh, the last theory would be that the holiday's name existed before Esther was written. So the author tells the story of Haman's lot to connect the meaning from the name to the holiday of the story. The story was written not to say celebrate, but more to say why to celebrate it for two days and on certain days. And this is why the book of Esther was written and why we hold it to this day. And you, congratulations, guys. You finished the book of Esther today. <laughs> so let's do a summary of the whole series, right? The book brings us into these morally gray characters, Esther and Mordecai. How Mordecai has a chance in the right, to be in the, uh, is by chance in the right place at the right time. And she is given by chance the queen's throne to eventually save the Jewish people from the threat of their enemies. That was there long before Haman came to power. And even after Haman's death, their enemies still wanted to destroy the Jews. Remember, Haman used anti-Semitism in Persia to his advantage against Mordecai, which means that the Jews were waiting for the day when these enemies would eventually turn on them. But with Mordecai's trust he gave to the king and Esther's beauty and wisdom, God used them in spite of their failures to save the Jewish people in Persia. So now Jews everywhere celebrate with hope and rest that God will somehow make a way for his people to be saved. Now, we see in the book of Esther some uh, written, a very sh- it's written in a very structured, literal, uh, literary way. When we look in the book, standing back, we can see a simple theme. So I want you to, like, imagine a V. I don't think we have a graphic for it. No. I didn't make a graphic for it. <laughs> but imagine a V, right? <clears throat> we have the first two chapters, or the first two chapters here, the last two chapters here, right? The first and second chapter, the king is in great power and in celebration with decrees. The last two chapters, it's the reversals. Mordecai is in great power and in celebration. Uh, Or with Esther and Mordecai saving the king here, and then the king, uh, no, sorry, excuse me, with Esther and Mordecai saving the king, and then in the end, they save all the Jews, right? So then Haman is elevated with his edict and banquet in chapter 3, reversed by Mordecai being elevated with his edict and banquet in chapter 8. Then you have uh, Mordecai and Esther's two planning scenes from chapters 4 and 5 to chapter 7 and 8, all meeting in the middle of the climax of the story in chapter 6, where Mordecai is taken through the city by Haman, right? So the story was written in a way for you to be able to pay attention to these divine reversals Adele Berlin says this about them. The story is structured on repetitions and reversals, climaxes and anticlimaxes. The audience's expectation is continually heightened only to be frustrated by yet another complication or delay with the effect of increasing the tension and the humor. After Mordecai saves the king's life, we expect him to be rewarded, but it is Haman who is elevated in high position. Mordecai's reward is delayed, saved for the delicious scene in which Haman's expectation is thwarted, and he, in a wonderful reversal, must give Mordecai the honor that he dreamed up for himself. We see God deals with evil through reversals. The wicked will have their end. Proverbs 24, 19 through 20 says this, Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked, for the evildoer has no future hope, and the lamp the wicked will be snuffed out. If I was Mordecai, I could see myself being jealous that Haman gained recognition and I didn't, right? We can often look at others and say, 
They cheated their way there. I didn't. I've been doing it honestly. I want what they have, though. We may even see ourselves try to become like them in an effort to get what they have gotten. But we know and believe in this idea of reversals. Even our faith is built on the reversal of the fall, that the serpent went into the garden and influenced the fall of humanity to now the kingdom of God, where humanity, the church, takes part in the fall and the serpent of evil. It may be difficult to even see God working against evil through reversals because he isn't mentioned in the book, and sometimes it can be difficult to see God in our own lives. Where is your justice, God, is where we ask. Michael Fox says this, the possibility of divine presence demands interpretation. Now, we've mentioned this multiple times throughout the series, but although God isn't mentioned in this book, we see him clearly among the pages of Esther. The author invites us to look for him. Not that he is hiding, but that he must be sought out. In this book, we can see the hopelessness the Jews first had to also seeing the behind the scenes where the story is shifting and there are things changing and through mere chance, things occur. But as readers and believers, the author is winking at us. He's inviting us in. He's asking, do you see him? H. Fish says this, in the end, there is only one ruler who commands, never officially promulgated, are unchanging and whose will prevails. He lurks behind the costly hangings of the court and whispers in the ear of Xerxes in the night. It is of him that the subtext speaks and whose deeds it records. The idea that there are even reversals implies someone is doing the reversing. It is here we see and learn of God in the story of Esther and where he is revealed, where the true person in power isn't Xerxes, Haman, Mordecai, or even Esther, but the great reverser. Michael Fox again says this, the chance occurrences have cumulative effect and show the guiding hand of God. Klein says, to the religious believer, chance is a name for God. Andrew has, this quote, uh, has said this quote before in this series, but it's, it's good and it applies to the study today. When we scrutinize the text of Esther for traces of God's activity, we are doing what the author made us do. The author would have us probe the events we witness in in our own lives in the same way. He is teaching a theology of possibility, the willingness to face history with an openness to the possibility of providence, even when history seems to weigh against its likelihood, as it did in the dark days after the issuance of Haman's decree. This is a stance of profound faith. Not only does the author invite us into deciphering where God, I God is, but gives us the question, where is God when things seem hopeless in our own life? Where is God in tragedy? Where is God in directing me? Where is God fill in the blank to what situation you're in? Again, Michael Fox, I feel something of anxiety that seized the Jews of Persia upon learning of Haman's threat to their lives, and I join in their exhilaration at their deliverance, except that I do not think there, but my Church, the book of Esther invites us into a few things, but most importantly, to find God among our story, even though there may be no clear sign of him. To look for him, to be an act of what he is doing. You may think to yourself, but who am I to work with God, even if I do see what he is doing? 
this is a good thing to ask. You may not be like Daniel, uncompromising and full of faith, but more like Esther and Mordecai, confused of where your morals come from, if they come from this world, Persia, or if they come from your heritage, from Christ. And that the worship team can make their way up. You may find yourself following in Haman's motives. You may find yourself confused in between worlds. Like Esther, she was taking part in sexual misconduct, revenge, pride. You may say, God can't use me. You don't know what I've done. Now, you shouldn't read this story and say, it's okay that I have faults. God will still use me. But rather, learn from the mistakes of Esther and Mordecai and be a part of God's work without the blemish and moral ambiguity. You're invited into the hope of all the Jews, the deliverance that they received, that we don't need to take from our enemies or become like them to get ahead, but rather wait on the Lord for safety and deliverance. Our whole faith in Jesus is based on this. We are an imperfect people hunted and tormented by sin and the Satan, reminded that this dark world will not last, but there is hope. There is a king who sees us and is kind. He's on our side. He's for the people and wants to help us in spite of who we have been to bring a great reversal to the darkness that we see today. God worked in Esther's life and in the Jews' life in Persia and is working for all people oppressed by government, sin, and evil spirits in high places. We know that no matter who is king, president, or ruling, things that God is in control ultimately. So when we don't see God, we can fast and pray, draw close to him, ask him, what are you doing? Where are you within the pages of my life? We can seek out what he is already doing. He's moving, church. It's not a matter on if God's moving, but where he is working. Like the Jews celebrate Purim, we have something to celebrate, and it's his coming kingdom. Like the Jews celebrate the hope of respite or rest from their enemies in the past and what's coming, we celebrate the hope and rest that is set for us. There is a chance that God has you where you are for a reason and a plan, and you may have failures, but God is still working. You can join in or miss out. Remember, Mordecai went to Esther and he said that. He says, deliverance is coming for the Jews whether you help or not, but who knows, maybe this is why you were here. Maybe the dark, heavy situations we see around us are invitations to look for God. By mere chance, we can find our situations reversed. Joyce Baldwin said this, For Jewish people, the book of Esther has been the ground for hope and their ongoing sufferings. They have looked for vindication. They have not been disappointed. Christians, for their part, cannot dismiss the Jews' reckoning. The providence of God continues to be traceable in their survival and their establishment of Israel, and it behoves the Christian to stand in awe. The book goes on making its contribution to Scripture, the story of its vicissitudes in connection with the canon reinforcing the story of Esther. That chance comes to us from the hand of God. This week as I was writing the sermon, I was praying to God, and I said, God, where have I gotten to be confused about? If I were to be Esther, what would I have been confused about? What would I have been like, this is the right thing to do because Persia taught me this in my upbringing? Or what would I say, 
God, you have taught me this. We're coming into a controversial series in the next couple of weeks where we're going to be asking the Lord, what is it that you have formed into the scriptures for us? What have you called us to? What are you speaking to us? And like Esther, myself, I prayed to God and confessed, and I said, God, if there's things in my life that are confusing me I make I, that I think are right, change them. Either way, deliver, God is bringing deliverance. Either way, God is working in through Las Lunas. Either way, God is working through Zion City Church. But church, let us go to God. Let's learn from Esther and Mordecai's mistakes. Yes, Mordecai was elevated, and he is a hero, and he stood up for his people. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have flaws that were clearly seen. And church, we can be a people that God uses, and I would love that. But let's take this time. Uh, Jake mentioned confessing during worship and also in pre-gathering prayer. Let's take this time and say, God, what do we need to confess? What do we need to come forward to you and say, what do we think is right that isn't right, God? He's going to bring deliverance either way because he's king, he's God, he is victorious, and he is the great reverser. But let's get on the same page with him. We can say, God, we're, we have failed, we have sinned, but please still use us. Please reveal to us your will. Please work with us. And he wants to, church. He wants to work with us. Going through the study of Esther has been beautiful. But it only is the beginning. It only points to what is in the future. Who knows? Maybe the book of Esther was written to inspire us for these reasons. Let's stand. Here at Zion City, not only do we want to listen to the word, but we want to respond. And in this time of response, we, we have people up here who will pray for you, I, myself and Andrew. And in this time of prayer, whatever is going on in your life, if, there's, if you're trying to find God and you can't see where he is, if there's a darkness where you're praying for a reversal for the kingdom of God to come down, we can pray for that. We can pray for healing. We can pray for wisdom. We can pray for God through confession and asking him to reveal things to us, whatever it may be. Let's respond today. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.